Yesterday, we were headed up to see my sister and to celebrate Christmas with my mom's family. And uh, so there's a tradition, part of our tradition is that I wear a Christmas sweater with a giant snowflake in the middle of it. It's black and red. Some of you have probably seen it before if you've been around. Uh, And I've worn that shirt since about 2004 every Christmas, and it's just become a thing. It kind of, this year I noticed something that it almost, it it fits me bigger because people in 2004, we men wore their clothes bigger on us. I don't know if you remember that, and now everything got smaller, and now it's getting a little medium again, Um, just to catch you up on, you know, uh, style of men. Uh, But back then we wore stuff bigger, so this shirt's like big on me now, and it's just, we wore things bigger. And has a snowflake, but I noticed this year it seemed more in style than it has in other years, thankfully, because of what I'm about to tell you. But for like eight years, I was looking for green pants to complete the outfit um, because I got Christmas socks, I got the sweater, couldn't find green pants anywhere. A couple of years ago, my sister gets me green pants. You've seen me wear them uh, once if you've been at church for a while, and I wore them when we had church on uh, March 17th. What's that day? St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and so I've worn them once in your presence, and you know I've, I wear them on Christmas and, and very rarely other than that. So, uh, so yesterday we're driving to see my mom's side of the family and celebrate Christmas and I have my big snowflake sweater on and I have my green pants on and we're driving down I-5. They, uh, my sister lives in Lacey and, and we're driving along and everything's going fine. And all of a sudden the car just rattles a little and then it felt like it was driving funny. And so I'm like, I think our tire might be going flat. It didn't feel like a get off the side of the road now, flat tire, but, uh, but it just, it was like, I think the tire's getting a little flat. So we pull off the road, and we see a gas station, and we take a left, and the gas station, like, shares a parking lot with Burgerville, so I'm thinking, like, it's a Christmas miracle, you know, uh, because Bryn was, I had been begging Bryn for, like, 30 miles, can I go to Burgerville? And she's like, you just, we're about to eat, can you just wait? And so I'm like, this is great, she still won't let me go into Burgerville, we go to the gas station, and my Christmas miracle turns into a Christmas nightmare, because I back into this little section uh, where you, to get air in my tires. Because it wasn't flat. The tire was not flat. Uh, but they were a little low, the front ones. They looked a little low. So I thought, I'll put some air in there. And it's kind of a hard spot to back into. But I got backed in uh, because I didn't know if the air thing was going to be long enough. And it turned out it was like two miles long. But I backed in there. And... So we get done, and everything's good. Hazel, by the way, has been sleeping the entire time, which was another Christmas miracle. She has not woken up on the whole trip. It's great. We're listening to a book. It was quite good. So I go to leave, and I turn, and all of a sudden, I can't drive anymore. And I'm like, what is happening? It's just a little, there was a little bit of like, I kind of maybe hit something, but not much. But all of a sudden I can't move. So I put her in a park, I get out and I've driven over something that's not quite this big, as big as the stage, but uh, about two thirds as big as that stage. And my car is now stuck with, uh, Bryn's car technically, is now stuck with one tire hanging off into midair and the other tire in her Honda Accord, not strong enough to back up nor go forward. Okay. So we have free towing. So I'm just like, we'll call free towing. But this guy gets out of a car. We're in Centralia, Washington. And, and now I did not know this about Centralia. All I know is that every time I drive through that area, it seems like they have another store. It's growing like crazy if you go up that way. But it turns out, and I'm very, this is the part that gets really bad, that Centralia is full of a bunch of country boys. So I'm out, I'm kind of looking, I'm like, want to get back in my car, we're on a pretty busy intersection, I'm wearing green pants and a snowflake sweater. 
First guy, older guy, definitely a country man, comes up. He's got like the lights on his truck. You know what I mean? Have you ever seen that like in a movie with the lights and he's ready to tow somebody even though that's not his job at all? He's wearing a cat hat, like the caterpillar things that pick stuff up. There's probably one out there in the construction area. And he's like, cops are going to give you a ticket if you don't move. First, I think it's a threat. We're like, oh, man, what kind of cops do we have here? Like, it was an accident. He's like, I'll help you. I'm like, okay, uh, how are you going to help me? So he starts to help me. Another guy gets out of his car, big, huge beard, burly man. I mean, these are all burly men. It goes on and on long like this. For it, It's about a 45-minute ordeal. And at one point, there were seven men who just knew what they were doing. And I'm out there in green pants and a snowflake sweater trying to explain, I'll have you know, my snowflake sweater. Well, it's a Christmas thing. And they're like, well, country boys will take care of this for you. I'm not kidding. I think they said something, those words almost exactly. We're out there. They're coming up with plans. They got wood in their trucks. One guy had a truck bigger than my house, you know. I mean, he pulled that. And we got it out without destroying anything, which was incredible. And I'm telling this story for a reason. Uh, it's embarrassing. I would have left it out. But, but as we kind of drove away and I got over my embarrassment, I, I was struck by something. These people had no reason to stop and help me. We would have been there an hour and a half or two hours and been totally late if we had waited for a tow truck. I'm not sure that the tow truck could have done a better job than these guys did. They created like a ramp with... with <laughs> pieces of firewood and hooked it up like triple and they cut their ropes for me actually after it was over and just destroyed them and one guy came out with a big machete and like it was like a whole thing I mean they were incredible they're down there they made sure they actually made sure that the bottom of the car was okay for me to drive afterwards so once I was like man oh by the way people had driven by on this busy road videotaping at one point so if you see a guy in a Christmas sweater and green pants on YouTube uh, that would be me people were yelling things but these seven men, it was actually eight men, but seven at one time had stopped. And after I got over the embarrassment, I was like, man, these guys had no reason to do that. They were just being nice. Even the first guy who said, you're going to get a ticket, it turned out he was like the nicest guy at all of all. He was all like googie-eyed over our baby, said she needs to be warmer. He actually was just worried I was going to get a ticket. And I, now I'm like, man, I want to know these guys. I want to find them on Facebook. That'll never happen. But like, I'm impressed. And I, I will stop in Centralia at Burgerville every time I drive north now because it's the kindest city in the whole world, in my opinion, minus the yahoos who were videotaping. But that's another story. And I was struck. This is what I was struck by. By these guys' willingness to take 45 minutes out of their days for no good reason whatsoever, to give of themselves, to even cut their own rope uh, because it was tied so tightly after we backed it up, just to give of themselves in that way for me, somebody they had never met with Oregon plates, I wasn't one of them. I was asked if I was a duck fan at one point, uh, and I was scared that if I gave a real answer, I was going to be shot. Um, wait a minute, I got a shotgun too, boy. Um, but they didn't do that. And they gave this time to help me, and it was really impressive. And, and here's the thing. As Christians, and this was not my intro before then. I didn't do it on purpose to make up an introduction. But I did have, I had this written down. I'll just give you the exact words. Other, other religions describe how we can get to God. Christianity declares that God came to be with us and that it happened in a man named Jesus. 
And it's pretty incredible that these guys in this city that I had nothing in common with whatsoever, nothing at all in common with these people. I don't carry a machete in my car. Uh, I, I mean, there's nothing. They were willing to kind of step out of their vehicles. One guy even drove back because he saw us stuck there to help me. But it's far more incredible to think about the God of the universe that I have zero in common with. I mean, he is God, I am me, he is perfect, I am sinful, he is all-knowing, I know very little, he is all-powerful, I don't have hardly any power at all. I mean, a being that I have nothing in common with was actually willing, and this is what we're going to talk about in this series, to step out of heaven and to step into earth in order to help me and to help you, uh, all of humanity, really. And this series is about that, and one of the questions I had, I mean, as I left these people is like, why? Why did they stop and help me? That was one of my questions. I mean, what drove them to do that? You know, I'd love to know that. And in the Old Testament, we get some of these questions answered about God, not the guys in Centralia. And in the book of Isaiah, a book that was written 700-ish years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah, this prophet, writes down these words for us that tell us a ton about why Jesus came to earth, why Jesus for him and the people he was writing to was going to come to earth. And here, even better, even better than that, what it accomplished for you and I uh, that Jesus did come to earth. And I think if you're a long-standing Christian, then you have the idea that God came to be with us because that's what makes Christianity so unique. No other religion, no other religion says God came to us. Every other religion says this is how you can get to God. If you just meditate right or you are obedient enough or uh, if you do certain things, you can get to God. But our religion, Christianity, it's one of the things that makes it so beautiful. It says God came to us. And Isaiah says, look, he says to us, who are long-standing Christians, I think, hey, there's some things that this actually accomplished for us. And one of those you know already, it's salvation, right? If you're a Christian, you know that we believe Jesus came and he died on a cross. But, but that's just like, that's just the beginning of it in some ways. Because Isaiah is just rich with descriptive language of what Jesus would do for us and, and why he came to be with us in the first place. Now, if you're not a Christian, I think that, that if you'll just kind of be here for the series and you'll listen and you'll be a part of this, I, I think that at the very least, you're going to recognize that, that there's a very big difference in Christianity, that, that God came to be with us. And at the very least, you'll be more impressed by the story of Jesus and, and the reasons that we claim, even if you don't believe it, that we claim, according to our God, he came to be with us. God came to be with people and actually became a person for these beautiful, beautiful reasons. And I think you'll be more impressed as we go through the series. Now, if you're like me, uh, just anytime anybody kind of comes to where you are and leaves their own element, it's always a little bit impressive. Uh, I, I a couple of examples. Um, if I can say something nice about myself. I, I mentioned that I went to have lunch with Leah, my niece, a couple of weeks ago. I said that in my sermon last week. And, uh, and, and just... I think she was touched because, not because it was like any different than us having lunch somewhere else together, but, but I think she was touched and it was important to her and, and that is, she said better than Disneyland actually, so that's pretty good, I'm pretty awesome. Uh, I, because I came into her element, I stepped out of, of my world and my schedule to, to be with her and I think that was important to her. Another example I thought of my uncle and my dad uh, 
actually came to Idaho when I was a summer missionary for, for two months, one summer in between my junior and senior year of college. And, and they drove all the way over and, and they spent a couple nights uh, and we celebrated the 4th of July and they saw the churches I was working at and all that. And, you know, they a lot of times they would come over and we do things together. But what made it so valuable is that they were willing to kind of take the step and, and, and travel the distance and come into an element that they weren't normally in, that wasn't a normal part of their life. And these are impressive things. And, and I hope, I, I really hope, that at the end of this series, we'll be just, even today, at the end of the day, I hope we'll be just impressed that God left the perfect element of heaven to come and be with us. But I hope even more than that, uh, as, as we go through the series, that, that we'll go, now I get why he did it. And now I get, this is an even bigger one, now I get how important it is to me that he did it. And because of that, I want to worship him greater. I want to become more passionate about him. I want to sing better when I sing. I want to pray more fervently. I want to be where Jesus is. I want to be about the things of Jesus. And, and here's where we're going to start today because uh, it's the first passage in Isaiah about, about Jesus that predicts Jesus. Uh, but we're going to start with this passage that really doesn't say much about why Jesus comes. It just kind of says, here's the sign. And I think it's important to start here because we're going to have really two choices and we'll talk about this in a second. But our choice is just to go through this series and see all this stuff and then kind of continue to live the same way. Or we can go through the series and see all this stuff and be changed by it. And I think this first passage really kind of sets the stage for that. It sets the stage for how are you going to respond to this series and what we learn about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And it says the word Emmanuel. But before we get to this passage, let me set it up for you. When we get to Isaiah 7.10 will be the first verse. When we get there, there's some things going on. Uh, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms. If you don't know Jewish history, this is just important for what we're about to see. The, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. One was called Israel and one was called Judah. And in our story, we're going to encounter the guy who was ruling over Judah. His name is Ahaz, and here's the other part of it. Uh, there were nations around Judah, this, this kingdom of Israel, that were threatening Judah. And Ahaz was scared, and all the people of the land with Ahaz, the Bible tells us, were so scared that they were shaking, basically what the Bible says. They were shaking in their boots because these nations had come together and they had formed an alliance and they were going to attack Judah. This is kind of the setup for us. These armies had come together, Israel and Syria specifically, and they've said, we can attack Judah, we can win, we can, we can beat them up, we can conquer them, whatever. And Ahaz is ruling Judah and that's pretty scary. I mean, even if, and, and their military might isn't close to us, but if Mexico and Canada got together and said, hey, we're going to attack America, we would feel a little bit, you know, trapped. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not going to work out very well because we're right in the middle of them. And that's what Judah is facing. And here's what we read in Isaiah 7, 10 through 13. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, but Ahaz said, I will not ask God. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, O house of David. It is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of my God also? So God has said through this prophet, Isaiah, hey, Ahaz, it's going to be okay. Pretty much. That's a summary statement. But it's going to be okay. And then God says, 
ask me for a sign that it's going to be okay. This is, this is one of the best things that God has ever said to a person, I think. I mean, wouldn't you like that? I mean, wouldn't you like a sign? Wouldn't you go, well, all the things we prayed for earlier. Well, I just, you know, my ankle is broken. I would like a sign that it will eventually get better. I have no idea where money for rent is going to come from. I would like a sign that guarantees that it's going to be okay and that I'm going to have enough money. There's this broken relationship with my family and I made it worse at Christmas and I wish that God would give me a sign and say, hey, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it okay. It's going to be okay. It asks me for anything. It's it's pretty great. This is what I want. This is what we all dream of. God, sure, it's going to be okay. But if you would just provide me a sign, that's how we think. But God just looks at Ahaz and says, hey, it's going to be okay. Ask me for anything you want. Whether it's up in heaven or down below, ask me for anything you want. And I'll make clear to you through this sign that it's going to happen, that Israel and Syria are not going to conquer you. And Ahaz declines. God says, ask for a sign. Ahaz, in essence, says no, but he, he veils, and this is something we do, he veils his no answer in something that sounds far more spiritual. He says, I will not ask for a sign. And he almost quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He does it incorrectly, but it sounds better if you throw a little almost Bible into your actions. We all know that, right? I mean, anybody who's ever rationalized something, if, if you're a Christian especially, if you can just throw a little Bible in there, then it just sounds better when you're being disobedient to God. But Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God says, ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I will not test God. I will Listen to Deuteronomy 6 and not the very word of God coming to me. But God doesn't say test me. I'd like you to notice that. God says ask me for a sign. And the idea of testing God is basically, in essence, it's saying, uh, God, I don't trust what you've said. And so therefore, I'm going to make you prove it. The difference between asking God for a sign and testing God is that when we test God, we're asking God to prove his words true. Here's an example. Hey, God... I'll stop lying if you just give me a sign that you really want me to do that. God's already told you not to lie. God doesn't need to prove that he already said that because he already said it. That's not asking for a sign. That is testing God. Let me give you another one. God, if you do exactly what I want you to do, then I'll believe in you. God said, well, I've done what I need to do for you. I've done what I want to do, what's right. I've done what's best. And if you declare to him, hey, God, do what I want you to do, do what I think is right, and I'll believe in you, then you are testing God. But God doesn't say to do that. God says, hey, Ahaz, it's going to be okay. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, well, I'm going to sound spiritual, but I'm not going to ask you for a sign. And here's why almost every scholar thinks that's true. Because Ahaz had already set a plan into motion to protect himself. And he really didn't want God getting in the way of it. We know from other places in the Bible, Second Kings and, and Second Chronicles, that Ahaz was a king who didn't have the heart of God, who wasn't like King David, who really was disobedient to God in a lot of ways. And, and it's widely believed, it's almost fully believed by every scholar that Ahaz declines this sign because he's already put a plan into place and he doesn't want God complicating what he's already set into motion and he doesn't want God complicating his life. Because we know, don't we kind of know, don't we just know a little, 
that if we ask God for a sign, God, prove yourself to me, and God proves himself to us, then it's going to mean we have to make some changes in one area of our lives or maybe a lot of areas of our lives or we're gonna have to do things different if God gives us that sign. The very reason that people test God, that people say, God, I'll stop lying if you give me a sign is because they don't wanna stop lying in the first place. And so they're just testing God because they're hoping that they won't have to make any changes at all. Ahaz is disobedient to God here. Because Ahaz doesn't want God to get in the way of what Ahaz wants to do. Now we go, well, that's a minor offense. I mean, it's veiled in scripture and maybe he just misinterpreted it. But we know from 2 Chronicles, to be more specific, 27, 28, chapters 27, 28. And 2 Kings 16, where kind of his whole kingship is recorded for us in the Bible. uh, that, That Ahaz's lack of willingness to trust God has major, major repercussions. He does worse things. Here's what he does. He fears the nations of Israel coming and Syria coming against him. And so instead of trusting God, instead of saying, God, sure, we'll go with your plan. I'll leave it up to you. You've promised you'd take care of us. He actually goes to a nation called Assyria, who is a godless nation, who was anti-God. And he says, hey, Assyria, I have a problem on my hands. They're going to come against me. Here's what we do. Let's start a relationship. You be an ally, and then we can win this war. And that's exactly what he does. And so Assyria and Judah fight together. He starts this alliance, uh, which breaks the Mosaic law. I would like to point that out. He actually broke the law of God to do that. Instead of asking God for a sign, he said, well, I'll do it my way. And he broke the law of God. And in order to pay the Assyrians, he takes money out of the temple of God, which for God is basically just robbing him. I mean, that's just robbing God. He said, well, God, I won't ask for a sign, but here's what I'll do instead. I'll start this partnership that breaks your rules. And I'll steal from you in order to make that partnership happen. And so that's really bad on a spiritual level. But, but on a, a non-spiritual level even, he starts to take from the national treasury to pay these, these people, the Assyrians. And so he starts to hurt the nation that God has set him over to rule. And then he starts to force people, wealthy citizens specifically, to give their money so that they can pay the Assyrians even more. So he's unspiritual and he's unwise and I think he's a little bit rude Uh, and he just does all these things all because instead of asking for a sign, he wants to continue down his own path and and do what he's already kind of set into motion when Isaiah says, hey, by the way, God says it'll be all right and you can ask him for a sign. This is what Ahaz does. And I think it's what we do. Maybe in specific areas of our life, And it may not be a sin thing. It may not be something you're doing wrong. It may be things you don't do. And this is what we do, people do, that that don't want to serve God, that don't want to become Christians. They just say, well, I I don't want to sound terrible. I don't want to say, well, here's the deal. I'm actually really selfish, and I don't trust God at all, and I kind of like my life the way that my life is, and I want to do the things I want to do, and I don't want that God character getting in the way of the things going on. So let me veil it like this. Well, science and God don't really go together, and I'm on the science side. Or, well, you know, I met some Christians, and they were jerks. Or, I visited that one church, and nobody said anything to me, so therefore I'm going to reject God outright. This is Ahaz. For you who are Christians, it's like, well, I know I do that one thing and I shouldn't do that one thing. 
but God, I'm just going to kind of keep doing that one thing because it makes sense, because it works, because it hasn't been ruined totally. If it's not broke, you know, why fix it? All that stuff. I mean, God, I'm just going to keep doing it because we function this way. This is just the way I am. We just make these excuses and they sound better than saying, God, here's the deal. I don't want to do it your way. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I, I reject you. Ahaz is rejecting God while almost quoting a Bible verse, and many of us do the exact same thing. And it tries the patience of God, what Isaiah tells us. And I just want to stop for a minute as we're going to go through the series. We're going to see all these things about God, and, and, and this are our, our kind of the first points, the first choice that we have to make is as we learn these things about Emmanuel, God with us, the importance of this. Are we going to be willing to accept them? Or are we going to say, well, that's nice, but I like my life the way it is. And I'm just going to continue to do things the way I am. But I'll come up with a better excuse. That's what Ahaz does. And Ahaz is evil and he tries the patience of God. We think it's just kind of being a little disobedient or not caring that much or, or, or things like that. But, but, but at the very beginning of this, I just, I just hope that you'll kind of chuck this idea that you have good excuses. Because in God's eyes, your, your good excuses not to follow him are never good excuses. The reasons that you give not to do what God wants you to do, whether that be become a Christian or remove sin from your life or do something, you know, uh, that God has called you to do, whatever reason you give is not a good reason to God if it's disobedient to him. And we need to get rid of that excuse right from the beginning because it's basically the same excuse that Ahaz gives. But God continues and he's going to give him a sign anyway. Isaiah seven fourteen, and this is where it really connects to the Christmas story. Jesus, God coming to be with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Despite not asking for a sign, Ahaz is going to get a sign. And the sign is going to be that a virgin or a young woman is going to give birth. Birth. Now, people in this passage, this passage is famous because it's quoted in the New Testament. We'll get to that in a second. But in scholarly, the scholarly theological world, it's famous because people just argue and argue and argue about the word virgin right there, whether it should mean virgin or wo young woman. It doesn't really matter. Uh, let me just give you four quick points that I don't think really matter because in the New Testament, it's quite clear that, that the gospel writers who tell us about Jesus are saying that Mary was a virgin, but whatever. Uh, I'll give you just a few things. First, First of all, the word can mean either. It specifically means young woman, but it leaves the idea of virginity kind of up in the air, whether or not this person is going to be a virgin. Uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, if you ever see LXX on anything, those, that's the abbreviation for it. Uh, it was translated by Jewish people who knew Hebrew, and they use a word that supports or lends itself to virgin. Uh, Matthew, a Jew who writes the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, it's the most Jewish of all the gospels, I would say. He uses a word virgin when quoting this Old Testament passage that says virgin. And, and then just the last one, this word neither stresses or rules out the idea of virginity. I want to point that out again. And so here we kind of have this open end. This person is a young woman that might be a virgin, but it really doesn't matter to the Old Testament. And it really doesn't matter to the New Testament because in the Old Testament, we don't really know what the sign was. Get to that in a second. But in the New Testament, we know exactly what it is. A girl named Mary, a nobody girl named Mary, a peasant girl named Mary who's a virgin, never been with a man, has a baby who is God with us. 
Now this brings us to something else we need to know about this passage, and that is the Old Testament does this really cool thing that can be a little bit annoying at times, but I think it's really cool. And that is that it gives these prophecies that have double fulfillment. In the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets will write and they'll say something. They'll say, this is going to happen. And then you can flip like two chapters later and you see the fulfillment of that prophecy. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that the prophecy wasn't actually fulfilled in its final form because the fulfillment of the prophecy in its final form is Jesus. Now, some people would say, well, that just means that, that the Bible is wrong. I don't know why they say it. But to me, it just says that the Bible's incredible. That God would be able to write and say, well, here's the deal. This is going to happen, and in the short term, it would happen so that that prophecy had meaning to those people who lived and were alive and could see it. And he could redo it in his son named Jesus and, and bring that prophecy to his final fulfillment. That's incredible. And that's exactly what we have in this virgin or young woman birth. To be totally honest, we have no idea who this child was that was born at the time of Isaiah. We know that they were given the name Emmanuel. That doesn't mean that God was born at that time. It means that this child was a reminder that God would be with the kingdom of Judah. That's important. And here's the other thing that we know, that it was a sign to Ahaz that God was going to come through on his promise. But what we really know is that when Jesus comes, this prophecy is really fulfilled. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. John 1.14 describes this, this Emmanuel idea that God came to be with us, talking about Jesus again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. One quick thing to point out, because it might already be driving you nuts, there's two spellings for the word Emmanuel. Uh, we had real trouble with that when producing this series, like how do we spell this, because you've seen it with an E before, and you might not have heard anything I've said so far, because you're sitting there going, wait a minute, they spelled it wrong, how can I trust this guy talking? In the Old Testament, the word Emmanuel is spelled with an I in its Hebrew form. When they write it in Greek, it's with what we translate to an E. Uh, and so in the Old Testament, it would have been an I, and in the New Testament, it's an E, but translators keep them the same uh, because they want you to understand the prophecy that's being fulfilled. Good explanation. Now we can get back on track where we need to go. Uh, but it's spelled both ways. We chose the I, which is less common because we're looking at Emmanuel as far as the Old Testament goes. That was the reasoning there. The other part of this that you need to see is that the name Emmanuel was in fact a rebuke to Ahaz, but something beautiful to us. He's saying, look, you don't think I'm with you? I'm going to send a child who's going to come and be a reminder that I'm with you. But when we get to the New Testament and, and 
this angel says to Joseph, who would be Jesus' dad, look, Mary's going to have a baby. His name shall be Emmanuel. Joseph understands, and we understand, that God has now come to be with us in a new, powerful way, and it's for beautiful reasons. Now, here's the thing about this sign. I get that it was written down, the New Testament sign, 2,000 years ago and a little more. But we have a choice like Ahaz. Will we believe this sign that Jesus came, or will we not believe the signs of Jesus? Jesus looks out at the people he's talking to at one point, and they say, give us a sign. And really what they mean is give us another meal because he had already provided for 5,000 men plus women and children. And, and, and they say, hey, give us another sign, and we'll believe. We'll believe that you're the Messiah, that you are God with us. And Jesus says, you already have the signs that you need, and he talks about Jonah. And his point in essence is if you don't believe it when it's written down for you and it's made so crystal clear through my life and the way he lived, then you're not going to believe it at all. And many in our world today, maybe even you, are like Ahaz. It doesn't matter what the sign is because you reject it for other reasons and you try to make it sound spiritual or you try to make it sound good or you try to make it sound smart, but really you're just rejecting and the sign doesn't matter. And over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about how powerful and beautiful it is that Emmanuel existed, exists, that God came to be with us. And we're going to look at all these things that Jesus did while he was on earth and how they align with what Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus existed. And the choice for you will be not whether or not God has given you a sign, but whether or not you will reject him and claim it's because the sign wasn't good enough. Jesus is the sign. He's the sign that God loves us and cares about us and came to be with us. And many will reject it simply because they want to be disobedient to God because they don't want anything to do with God because they don't want God getting in the way of their plans because they like their life the way it is because if they come to God, then their morals will change. And many of you who are Christians reject things that God has said and you kind of take parts and bits and pieces because you don't want your life being changed by God too much because it might make you weird or it might make you uncomfortable, it might make you poor, it might make you hurt. And you have a decision to make when we study what Isaiah says about Jesus and we align it with his life, will you accept the incredible sign that came when Jesus was born? And here's the cool part. I love this, I love this. Isaiah 7, 15 through 17, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right or before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land, the land Of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This doesn't stand out, right? This doesn't jump off the page as cool. Uh, when I first read, I was like, how am I going to include that? It's too bad that when we were doing the sermon calendar that I included those verses because we could have stopped. But, but, but notice what he says. He says, look, this baby's going to be born. And before he knows what right and wrong is, I'm going to come through for the kingdom of Judah. It's in essence what he says. 
Now we know because bar mitzvah started at some point in Jewish history that Jewish people traditionally think that, that when a kid hits 12, a boy hits 12 or 13 years old, that's when they understand right from wrong. That's when they can be held accountable for their own actions. Before that, it's their parents' fault. So what the prophet Isaiah says to Ahaz for God is, hey, by the time this kid is 12 or 13 years of age, God is going to come through on his promise to you. And we know that in 722 BC, about 12 years after Isaiah gives this prophecy to Ahaz, the Assyrians come in and they lay the land to waste, doing exactly what God has promised. Now here's the other part that just jumps off the page. Ahaz's plan, here's what Ahaz says, I'll just go and I'll make friends with the Assyrians who are evil and bad and jerks. I'll make friends with them and then we'll work it all out. God don't need you. Stay over in your corner. Let me do the things that I'm doing. I'm fine without you. God says, I promise I will come through. I promise that I will fix this. And God sends the Assyrians It's almost as if he has the same plan. But because Ahaz chose to do it his way and not God's way, the results are vastly different. Vastly. Listen to this. Ahaz almost destroys Judah. It almost destroys the very nation, the very kingdom that Jesus comes from because of of his disobedience to God. First, uh, as he threatens, he threatens their existence, like literally threatens their existence because the Assyrians come in and they're not true to their word. I mean, think about it. You got an evil, evil nation and you go, hey, I'll give you a little money. Come in and help me out. And all, I just, I'm not very political and I don't know how, you know, you like rule a world or anything. But if I'm trying to rule the world and I'm trying to take over everybody, here's my plan. Get people to think I'm on their side. Let, just get them to let me into their country and then we'll take them over. It'll be way easier than having to fight our way in, right? And that's pretty much what the Assyrians do. They say, we'll take your money, sure. We'll help you out, sure. And then they get there and they just suppress the Israelite people, the, the kingdom of Judah specifically, almost immediately. Beyond that, Ahaz completely gives up his military power to the Assyrians. The Assyrians tell the, the kingdom of Judah, this is what you'll do and this is what you don't do. He pretty much gives up his kingship and becomes kind of a, a, a figurehead ruler in, in Judah because the Assyrians will just say, hey, you can kind of have your position of power so that we look nice or whatever, uh, but you'll do exactly what we tell you to do. Worse than that, he, he imports the corrupted pagan religious practices of the Mesopotamia. Uh, he, he, he causes the people in, in Judah to worship heavenly bodies, that's stars and planets. He, he causes them to sacrifice children and people are running around consulting wizards instead of God of the universe or the prophets who have an ear to the voice of God. His name is connected with heathen abominations such as sun worship. And these practices survive until a guy named Josiah shows up on the scene and says, wait a minute, I'm now king and we're not doing this right. He produces generation and after generation of disobedience to God and poverty 
and oppression because we know that Judah just, and if you can go back and listen to our series, Optimistic, and we kind of covered like that whole time period where they go from being ruled by the Assyrians to being ruled by the Babylonians by, to being ruled by the, the new Assyrians again and, and then being ruled by the Romans. And, and here's Ahaz right at the beginning of it saying, God, I'll do it my way. God's looking down going, man, our plans are pretty similar, but you're going to ruin this. And in this series, we're going to see these incredible things about Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. That he is our wonderful counselor, that he came to save us, that he cares about us, that he wants to hold us close to his heart like a shepherd takes care of sheep. That he was willing to sacrifice for us, that he rose again even. And we have a choice. God, I will take it all in and I will accept you at your word or God, I don't care about your signs. I'm gonna keep doing things my way. I'm gonna keep being worried. I'm gonna keep being sinful. I'm gonna keep holding guilt over myself. I'm gonna keep uh, breaking the rules that you have given to me. I'm not gonna do the thing that you've called me to do. I'm gonna, I don't care what it means that Emmanuel was with us but I'll veil it in some kind of spiritual language. Or you can say, okay, what does it mean that God came to be with us and why in the world would he do it? I mean, why would seven burly men stop in Centralia, Washington to help a guy with this car? I do not know. But far, further, I would have no idea why God would come to this universe or to this earth and, and be here with us and do things for us if, if we had not had it recorded for us in the Gospels, but also in the book of Isaiah. And we have a choice to accept it and to embrace it and to be excited about it. And to say, wow, God has given us the ultimate sign. And so I will, instead of rejecting him, trust him. And that's what this comes down to. This is what it comes down to. In this series, we will see the value, the importance, the greatness of Emmanuel, God with us. And you have two choices. They're the same choices Ahaz had. You can choose to reject it or you can choose and you think I'm going to say accept it. But it's not just accepting it. It's true. You can choose to reject it or you can choose to trust in God. You see, we just think it's rejected or accepted. Like, sure, that's kind of true, whatever. Yeah, I believe it. But it's really we reject it or we trust God and we trust what he says and we trust him to be who he's told us that he would be and we trust him with our lives and we trust him for our salvation and we trust him for our eternities. And so this morning, I just, this is all, this is the point of the sermon, to set you up and say, hey, we're going to study this Emmanuel, and we're going to look, and these passages are, I, I didn't say this, but they're beautiful in the book of Isaiah, and they're awesome in the book of Isaiah. And so to give you all that, but also to say, as we do this series, I just ask that you say, just this morning, I'm not going to reject it, because I don't like it, because it doesn't fit my paradigm, because I have a worldview that's different than that, because I like the sin that I'm committing if you're a Christian, because I like kind of not trusting God, because doing it my way is working pretty well, whatever it might be, but instead trust God and make a decision this morning, no matter what we see in the book of Isaiah, and you don't even know what's coming, but if God says it, you're going to trust it. And so I ask that you make that decision this morning, and I pray, or I ask that you would pray with me, Lord, I uh, Man, I don't want to be like Ahaz, God. I don't want to be like Ahaz. And, and I am sometimes, God, uh, because I, cause I, I look at my life and I think, well, I can, I can fix this on my own. And sure, God told me to wait. Or sure, God 
told me that I should not worry about it or whatever, and I just, I reject you is what I do, God. And, and I veil it in this kind of pseudo-acceptance of what you've said, um, but really it's, it's, it's an outright rejection of things that you've said. And, and I pray, God, for all of us who are here and, and the people who will listen to the series online, Lord, um, that, that as we talk about what it meant that, God, you came to be with us, that we would trust it. And, Lord, as I, as I kind of outlined this series and I, I know what's coming, Lord, I, I can look out at these people in front of me and know that the words that you gave us in the book of Isaiah the importance of, of Emmanuel, of, of you with us, God, will just fit so many of their lives in such profound and powerful ways. I know that some in front of me, some in front of me have a tendency to, to, to just skirt around, God, your word and, and to just be disobedient to you, but they kind of veil it in their justifications or whatever. I know others, God, uh, have a tendency to worry about things instead of trusting. I know others, God, uh, while they don't believe this and they accept you as true, God, and, and, and your word is true, they still feel somewhere inside of them that, that they can't actually trust you to embrace them and to love them because of who they are or what they've done. And, and God, they go through their whole lives just feeling a sense of guilt. And that's another one, God. I know there are people in front of me and even people who love you and understand your gift of the cross who still hold their sins over their heads, God. And they, they in some ways reject Emmanuel, not outright, but they reject what you have offered when you suffered and died for our sins by holding their own guilt in their hearts and saying, I will pay for this, even though you've told us that you will pay for it, God. And so I pray, Lord, that, that through this series, we will, we will not just accept you as true, but we will trust you as right and good, and we will trust you at your word, Lord, being unlike Ahaz. God, I thank you that you came to this earth. I thank you that you came to this earth, and I thank you for all it means, and I pray that I would, I would present it well and we would accept it well as we see it in the book of Isaiah, God. In your holy name, amen.